You're listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. Today, CAP President Kathy Herrod is joined by former Arizona Senator John Kyle. Since they last spoke, Senator Kyle has completed his four months as acting senator, filling the seat held by the late Senator John McCain until the appointment of Martha McSally. Kathy visits with Senator Kyle about being Sherpa to Justice Brett Kavanaugh during his nomination process in the book Justice on Trial by Carrie Severino and Molly Hemingway. The former senator isn't slowing down, and he shares his wit and wisdom with us today on Engage Arizona. We hope you enjoy. Joining me today is um, Arizona's um, finest senator in my lifetime, at least, is um, John Kyle, who is my congressman um, and all of our congressmen from 86 to 95 then U.S. Senator from 95 to 2013, and then again for four months in 2018, roughly four months. So let's start with, um, why did you first run for office? What was your motivation and your interest? You know, I've tried to think about that over time, and uh, <laughs> it, it's, it goes back to public service, um, wanting to give back. I had a strong uh, philosophy, uh, political philosophy, and was motivated to try to pursue that conservative philosophy to persuade others that it was the right thing to do and to make a difference in that milieu. And I will tell you that my father was a member of the U.S. Congress from the state of Iowa uh, for a while when I was in basically uh, uh, high school and early uh, college years. And um, I saw him in Washington, D.C. making a difference, and clearly that had an influence on where I thought I might like to um, direct my energies. And so when the opportunity arose, I decided to take the chance, and sure enough, it worked out okay, and I've been able to do public policy for a long time since. So, you know that I can't talk to you without mentioning Carol, and that, what, have you, if I have it right, you guys have been married something like 55 years? That's correct. And what I've seen, of course, so much through the years is what a team you two were. So when you think of D.C., and uh, I mean, just... Any you know quick thoughts on the your the recipe or you know what's worked in your marriage and how the two of you have you went through so many years in D.C. to travel back and forth what worked? Well, first of all, the fact that she basically put her career on hold to support me was a big factor in all of this, and I'll be forever grateful of that. She was a huge factor in our very first campaign. She found a place, campaign headquarters to rent, and she bought all the computers and. The chairs, you, know, you didn't buy them back then, you begged and borrowed, <laughs> you know. But um, so she has always been a big part of uh, working in my campaigns and in my campaign office. Um, in Washington, D.C., uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place that, um, it's a great place, but you can also get into trouble in Washington. And one of the things that she liked to do was to mentor the younger, newer wives of members of Congress who were elected and one of the things she always told them was, you come back to Washington to be with your husband. Don't divide your marriage because too many marriages suffer as a result of the one spouse coming back to Washington, growing a lot. I mean, when you come into Congress, you learn a lot and you become much more than you were back in your hometown, whatever it was. And meanwhile, if your spouse, in this case a wife, is back there raising the kids, um, She's not growing at the same time you are in the same way you are. And eventually you become different than you were when you got married, and that leads to problems. So uh, that was one of the reasons we were successful. We were together virtually all of those times, and uh, that made life a lot better for me and uh, it strengthened our marriage. 
So you, um, Governor Ducey calls you and says, hey, will you go back to the U.S. Senate when you thought you were done? Why go back for those four months? Well, at first I said, no way, Jose. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, eventually, um, uh, when he talked to me the final time, uh, he, he really said, look, I really would like you to do this, and uh, we'll do it this way. Whenever you want to step aside you feel fine to do that. And I said, well, uh, I certainly don't want to do it for two and a half years uh, or for four and a half years, which would be the remainder of John McCain's term. Uh, but in order to get over the problem that we have right now, Senator McCain is just, it was, this was just before he passed away. Um, there was a lot of turmoil in politics and I said, in order to try to keep things tamped down and um, people feeling uh, that the transition to a new senator from John McCain will be as easy as possible, I will do that. I know how to do the job, obviously. <laughs> John and I served together for 18 years. So I said, I'll do it, but I only want to do it until the end of this current congressional session. That turned out to be four months. And so I did that, and I'm glad I did. It was a sacrifice for both Carol and me, um, and it wasn't the same that it was back when I had done it before, but um, I think things could have been a lot more disruptive in the state politically if I hadn't done it. The fact that people knew me and knew I wasn't going to turn everything upside down, I think made a difference, and, uh, and I think I was able to do a few positive things, too. Well, we're, and we're grateful for that sacrifice, and I think citizens often um, overlook the sacrifice that, that elected officials make, um, and that it, um, it certainly is a sacrifice. Well, we can't talk about the turmoil without talking about, of course, the confirmation process for ju now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino have just released a new book, Justice on Trial, about the Kavanaugh confirmation, and they have one quote, uh, one reference to you, uh, they have more, but this one reference I pulled out in a sea of loudmouth senators, Portman and Kyle were among, referring to Senator Bob, Rob Portman, Portman and Kyle were among the most effective, quietly, and effectively lobbying their colleagues and addressing their concerns. So share just what was that like behind the scenes? I mean, how ugly it got with, with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. It was ugly. Rob Portman had known uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, for many years before this. They had served together in the Bush administration. So they were friends, and Rob knew him very well, and he knew that, that Justice Kavanaugh was a top-flight uh, uh, person and therefore could strongly support him from a personal standpoint. When, when he and I talked to our Senate colleagues about Justice Kavanaugh, he could say, look, 15 years ago, I can tell you what I, uh, how we worked together and what a great guy he is. Well, I had only been working with him for a couple of months before this, uh, helping to uh, acting as what they call the Sherpa, introducing to all the senators, helping him to get to their offices and answer their questions, follow up with information if need be. And so he and I had visited uh, over 50 of the Senate offices, mostly Republican. And in that time, I think I really got to know him because uh, he got asked a lot of different questions, and many of them were repetitious, so I learned a lot from him, too about his judicial philosophy, the way that he thinks a judge should approach, approach judging, um, and also about his personal life and his values, and it convinced me that uh, he was a 
a great candidate for the Supreme Court, and I could relay some of those experiences to my colleagues in the Senate when we discuss the nomination. What in your what you've been in, in Congress for a, a few years, but when Justice Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings happened, that was um, just before early ninety one or early nineties. Yeah, but probably. I didn't get to the Senate until ninety five. Yeah, so but just differences. I mean, I mean, or what was the future for judicial nominate uh, confirmations? Because you look at Thomas and Kavanaugh, not all of them have, have been as volatile, but I think we expect the next one will be potentially even worse. Yeah, here is a story that illustrates what I think the difference is. When Ted Kennedy and Pat Leahy, who later became chairman of the Judiciary Committee, both Democrats, argued against Clarence Thomas on the floor of the Senate, they both said, we could filibuster and defeat his nomination, but it wouldn't be right. We've never done it before. It shouldn't be done. And so we'll just try to argue it on the merits. They knew they would lose because Republicans had enough votes for Clarence Thomas, and he was confirmed, um, I think, 52 to 48. Had they decided to filibuster, Clarence Thomas would have lost. He would not be on the Supreme Court. Well, today, filibusters, uh, or I should say until very recently, filibusters of Supreme Court nominees have become the rule, not the exception, uh, because it was just a matter of power. It was a matter of, we control the Senate, or we're going to keep you from getting your nominee. We have the power to do it, and so we're going to do it. Um, Harry Reid, the leader of the Democrats, made a big mistake um, uh, in his last year when President Obama complained about Republicans being too slow to confirm Court of Appeals judges. And so he changed the rules in the Senate to eliminate the filibuster for district court and courts of appeals judges. When the Gorsuch nomination came up from uh, President Trump, uh, therefore, the precedent had already been set to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court judges as well, and that was what occurred. So when Brett Kavanaugh comes along, there is no filibuster, just as there shouldn't have been way back when, and the Democrats at that time recognized that there shouldn't be a filibuster. But that shows you how history changed. Uh, one, you know, a long time ago with Clarence Thomas, at least to some extent, they played by the rules. This time, it was just a matter of power but they kind of hurt themselves, the Democrats did, because they set the precedent to eliminate the filibuster for eventually two Supreme Court nominees that I, I know they would have rather filibustered <laughs> if they could have. But well, and, and in, in the Clarence Thomas situation, there was some decency still among, as far as the respect for the process. There was still some following of rules. I, I, mm -hmm. A lot of people would say Clarence Thomas wasn't treated very decently, but I, know, right. I think there are people yeah. on the other side who feel that uh, his accuser wasn't treated fairly either. It was more of an even-handed approach than the Kavanaugh approach. Um, yeah, I think sometimes people lose sight of what the role of a judge is. And I you know, know of a recent example of where another judge was telling other judges, well, you do the right thing. Um, I don't think we want judges that to, to do the right thing as far as following the law and interpreting the Constitution. Just speak to what you see as the proper role of a judge when we look to people who should be judges. Well, if by doing the right thing you mean following the Constitution and the law, then I'm all for doing the right <laughs> thing. Uh, but if by that uh, the judge is, is saying, I think the case ought to turn out a certain way, and I'm going to manipulate the decision in such a way that that's what happens, that's wrong. Uh, you know from your husband being a very good uh, judge that um, he may not be happy with the way the case comes out sometimes. 
But if that's what the law and the facts require, that's his job. It's not his job to rewrite the Constitution or to change the law that applies to the case. It's his job to say, what are the facts? What law is applicable here? That's the template for how the case has to be decided. And I know that's Justice Kavanaugh's approach to it. And uh, so far in his service on the court, I think we've seen him apply that kind of even-handed standard. Not how should the case come out, but how does it come out based upon the facts and the law? It's very interesting to watch the Supreme Court these days and, and you know, some of the dissents and all of that. It's one of the um, one of the more interesting things going on in our... It is for lawyers like you who, <laughs> who study these things. You can see a lot of little nuances and below the surface... Um, I, I'm going to use the word machinations, but in in a positive, in a constructive mm -hmm. way, not a negative way. Uh, the, the chief justice and the other judges are not unmindful of how they would like to see the law evolve. And uh, I don't say they play politics, but they, they may act uh, in a way to move the law, to nudge the law in the direction that they'd like to see it move. So I've heard you share before about what, when you look at just the average citizen out there that wants to contact their elected official, or even you know the type of position that I've been in, for advocates, what advice on how, what's the best way to communicate with your elected official? What works and what doesn't work? The For most citizens who are not represented by lobbyists, the most effective way is to contact the local office of the congressperson or senator and say that you'd like an appointment with the senator, let's say, and if that's too difficult to get, then I'd like to speak with the staff member who's in charge of X, Y, or Z. And then you go to that office and you meet with that staff person and you think carefully about the kind of case you're going to present. And there's a, we could spend all day on this and okay. I won't get into detail, but the bottom line is think through the kind of argument you're going to make going in be very brief, be very be nice about it, have written material you can leave behind, and be sure to have an ask. I'd like for the senator to sign this letter that urges such and such, or to sponsor this amendment, or whatever. Uh, people would be surprised at how much difference they can make communicating with their congressperson or senator. And you can do this through email and letters and telephone calls too, but the in-person visit with the member or staff is probably the best. So what about the advocacy groups and what you've seen that, you know, almost like what makes you cringe when you see um, the the lobby group or the, um, on, on any side, that, I mean, a conservative group that's that's trying to persuade an elected official or trying to get something through? Sure. The, um, just about everybody has, if, if you're going to be really effective at the national level, you have some kind of an association of people, like-minded people who can band together and who can fund a professional lobbyist. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with lobbyists. The Constitution <laughs> says so. It says you have the right to petition your government. And that means you can get some professional help to help you petition your government. And that's a lobbyist. So um, if you can find somebody who knows how to do this in an in appropriate way, that can help so you don't have to take all the burden on yourself. And presumably this person knows, knows what they're doing. But, but the key messages are still be straightforward, uh, be specific, be nice, uh, and be persistent. 
I always think you'll feel like when someone will say, well, tell your elected official how to vote. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, let's be nice and let's ask them or, you know, encourage them. Not that we're telling them, you know, yeah. demanding that they do this or that. That's right. Now, granted, they're public servants and you're the boss. Right. We, the voters, <laughs> That's right. we, it's we, the people who are in charge. And we have a right to direct our representatives on what we want them to do. But you always get more... Uh, uh, results with honey than vinegar, and uh, as our mothers taught us, <laughs> be nice. People appreciate that, and particularly when you're talking to some young staffer who's going to be writing a memo to the boss. Um, you know, you'd like the memo to start out. This very nice group of people came in to talk to me, <laughs> and very respectfully asked that you support Amendment Number Such and Such, and here are the reasons that they gave. You know, that's the way you'd like to have the memo written. Um, how how do you get things done in Washington? I mean, what what did you find to be I mean, strategically um, just strategic advice? Well, you have to know the rules and you have to know the processes and how you can leverage them to your advantage. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. But you're playing by the rules, and if the rules allow you to do something, know know how to use them. Secondly, and this is not a good word uh, to a lot of people. But if you've ever been in a marriage, you understand the importance of it. Compromise. When I represented people in Arizona, I figured maybe I represented 55% of them and about 45% had a different view, roughly speaking. Well, they should have a voice too, even though John McCain and I were both Republican senators pretty much supporting the conservative line. Uh, I never thought that we uh, were the font of all wisdom and that uh, people who disagreed with us deserved zero so if you go into it with that, if somebody makes a good argument to you that they ought to get something out of a, a, a deal, be willing to be open-minded with that. And if you can get something in return, that may be called making a deal, but that's what legislating is all about. Well, I'd love to support you, but I need this. Okay, what if I give you half of what you want? Would you then be willing to join me in getting half of what I want? Okay, maybe, maybe that's the way that deal works out. And so over time, you learn to work with people who have a different point of view and who can help you get what you want, but they may need something too. And if what they want or need is okay, then why not make that kind of an agreement? Uh, We had a lot of situations where what I would have to give was either philosophically bad or was spending way too much money on something. And on those occasions, I couldn't get it done because I wasn't willing to say, okay, I'll give you at least some of what you want. But if it was a matter of money and I could get it down to a reasonable amount of what they were asking for, and meanwhile they supported something that was very important to Arizona, then I would consider the deal, and we made a lot of deals like that. That speaks to the need to be wise in how you conduct yourself and how you interact with others, how you negotiate. And and having good judgment. Again, uh, a lot of these deals involve members uh, from the other party coming in and saying, look, I'll support your, you you want this big water settlement for Arizona? I know that's important to you. Well, I've got something going up in Montana. I said, well, fine, let me check it out. And I'd find out that it was like 10 times more expensive than it should be. And I'd go back to him and say, look, I'd be willing to help you out if you cut it down to size that's reasonable. And then we would negotiate. And sometimes they were willing to do it. Sometimes they weren't. And when they weren't, we didn't have a deal. As we move into 2020 and we're in a busy, a critical election year in many people's views, what concerns you most about where our country's headed, where our state is headed, you know, where, where we are electorally? Well, this, this is important to people who will be listening to us here today. 
culture precedes politics. This is a bit of wisdom from Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you can understand culture, and even more importantly, if you can help to shape culture, uh, you'll have a lot better time in politics. The culture in our country today, uh, up until relatively recently, I would say, was moving in a direction that, uh, I, that worries me a great deal. And so I think part of what groups like CAP can do is not just be involved in the political arena, but in the cultural arena. What is good for our families? What is good for our communities? Um, and how can we foster those things? And if we have good public opinion supporting those positions, the politics actually becomes a lot easier. And I'm talking about educating young people to the values that underpin the founding of our country, um, uh, a proper role for religion in our society. You know, the Constitution, the very first thing it does, very First Amendment, you have a right to the free exercise of religion. Well, there are a lot of folks that don't like religion very much, and they don't want you to be able to exercise your religion. Uh, and so they say, well, okay, if you want to go into the church and close the doors and do whatever you do in church, uh, we're okay with that. But we don't want you to manifest your faith in the public square in any way. Well, that's, that's baloney. Um, virtually every faith has a role for the faithful to go out and spread the message to others who they think need to hear it. And that's true whether we're talking the Christian faith, the Muslim faith, for example. So there's nothing wrong with taking your values and your beliefs out into the public square. And if they're predicated at least in part on your, on your religion, on your faith, then so be it. And doesn't that go to the essential issue of freedom in this country? And what is freedom? If we don't have the freedom to believe as we see fit individually, then won't we have lost freedom? Yeah, exactly. And what bothers me so much these days is it's not enough just to be tolerant. You know, we're all taught to be tolerant. And I'm certainly tolerant of political views with which I, I don't agree and people with whom I have big disagreements. But for some, uh, on the left at least, it's not enough for conservatives to be tolerant. We have to accept their point of view or else. And the or else is government will come in and somehow impose that view on all of us. That's wrong. We need to be more tolerant of each other as a nation. And uh, that extends to the right to the free exercise of our religion. Okay, so to close with just a totally different um, question. Do I have it right that one of your hobbies for many years was to go hike Camelback Mountain? Yes. What, what, what are your hobbies that you're doing now? And you're not, not total retirement, semi-retirement, and you're still yeah. plenty busy. I mean, you're, you've got a lot of irons yeah. in the fire, but, but what, what are you doing for well, in your leisure I, I, I still love to hike, um, but um, we have a, a summer cabin up in the White Mountains in Arizona. And I love to get up there, not just to get out of the heat, because I don't mind the heat all that much, but it's so pretty up there, and you can get a lot of other kinds of exercise besides hiking. Ronald Reagan loved to split wood, so do I. <laughs> doesn't take a lot of thinking to do that. Uh, and uh, so I, I love to get up there and just uh, see the beauty of the White Mountains and, and get some good exercise and, and still do what hiking I can. Yeah. Well, thank you for your many years of service, for spending time with us today. We're grateful for your leadership and that you're still in the fight. So thank well, you, Senator Kyle. Thanks, Kathy. And thanks for CAP and all the good that it does. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.